We are in a series, Parables with Power. This morning's parable is entitled, The Parable of the Pounds. Now, every believer, the moment you were born again, you were entrusted with a very weighty, weighty matter. Placed in your hands is the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that Christ alone and His sacrifice is our salvation. Each of us, the day that we become a Christian, receive into our hands one pound, one gospel. And there's only one gospel. The question this morning is how well, and really that's the parable, how well are we doing with the pound that's in our hands? How are we using His resources? Now in this parable, there are three groups. There are those who did what they were supposed to do. There were those who didn't do what they were supposed to do. And then sadly, there were those who hated him. And so each one of us this morning are somewhere in those categories, three possibilities. I'm either a friend, or I'm a false friend, or I'm an out-and-out foe. Friend, false, and foe. Now, in this amazing illustration, Jesus embraces all of humanity. This is known as the parable of the pounds, or as uh, somebody said, how to gain a few pounds. (laughs) And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, hopefully not gain it around our middle. Some of us are like the preacher, I'm afraid, who was on a diet and prayed as he was on his way to work. Now, Lord, if it's your will for me not to have any donuts this morning... Make sure that there's no parking spots in front of that donut shop. Later, he said, I ate two donuts because there were two spaces right in front of that donut shop. And it was on my eighth trip around the block there. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think that's how we find out the will of God. And truth is, we want to gain the kind of pounds that are spiritual pounds. And so let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for... This parable, I thank you, Lord, what it's instructed me this week, and how again, Lord, I just a fresh, uh, just a commitment, Lord, to being faithful with a, a sacred trust that you've placed into my hand. Thank you for this church, Lord, honestly, as I've thought about them this week, prayed for them so much. Lord, my heart's so filled with gratefulness. What a church, so faithful, Lord, in so many areas that faithful pound that's been placed in their hands. And then, Lord, for those of us who feel like at times we drop the ball, help us, God, today to pick it back up and do what we're supposed to do, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The parable of the pounds. Now, as you begin to hear it unfold, those who are familiar with the New Testament might remember the parable of the talents. It's going to sound familiar, but it's actually a different story, different occasion, different location, and even a different uh, application, although there are some similarities. Parables, what are they? They're just earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Jesus took this parable from the uh, day-to-day workings of the Israel society. There was a nobleman who had worked very hard. This was one who had been born into uh, riches, but was a very good person who worked very hard. He then goes away to be officially recognized as a very able ruler and to receive the kingdom. He comes back to the kingdom to rule over that country. But while he's gone, he gives to his his servants a certain amount of money, and he expects them to do business and to keep his enterprises going. He counts on them. He's not going to be there. He can't oversee them. He's not going to guide everything that they're doing. And he expects them to get up on their own, to get out there, and to do business for him. And when he returns, he's going to evaluate how well they've done. Now, I think in this kind of a story, since there's so many different aspects to it, and actually, uh, not always, but in this case, most of the parts of the story have a very definite spiritual meaning. The nobleman is Jesus, going to the distant country to receive a kingdom is Jesus's resurrection and his ascension. The citizens that hated him are the Jews that hated and rejected Jesus as king. The nobleman that returns is Jesus's second coming. 
The two servants are faithful believers, albeit a little bit difference in their gaining. The one servant is an unfaithful believer. The pound is the gospel that is to be proclaimed. The receipt of cities is the rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. And the pound that is taken away is the loss of those rewards at that same judgment seat of Christ. The enemies are unbelievers that are cast into the eternal punishment. Now, that kind of gives us a little legend about what we're talking about. You can kind of keep that uh, in front of you as we're going along. Let's take a look at this uh, parable. Let's break it down. First of all, the king explains something. Number one, his future. Let's go to verse 11. In fact, let's read 1911 together, would you? Out loud just to kind of, so we all get on the same page. I, I see some of you are having a little bit of bacon coma here and, and a pancake coma, so uh, I think that's me too. But let's read verse 11, all right? And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now, the first 10 verses of chapter 19 are that wonderful story of Zacchaeus. The guy had a kind of a strange name, but boy, you talk about a great guy. I love Zacchaeus. Little guy, big faith. He was up in that tree, and he uh, just responded with such excitement to go and serve the Lord. He just had left that story. He had pronounced in verse number 10 that that's why he's here, to seek and to save the lost. Now, there's about a, and that took place in Jericho. Jericho is about a 17-mile walk to Jerusalem. A crowd was probably around him. Now, I remind us, when we look at these, uh, the Gospels, uh, sometimes people say, boy, that was like a short sermon, and Jesus only preached a short sermon. Well, I will tell you that in the last book of John, it reminds us that if, if everything was written down that Jesus said on earth, the books couldn't even contain them. This is one of those times. I don't know how long 17-mile walk would take, but uh, I'm sure it'd take almost a day. And uh, I guarantee Jesus wasn't just quiet the whole way. He was preaching. He was speaking. Maybe they stopped for a little prayer meeting along the line. But there they were. There was a small crowd, maybe a pretty good-sized crowd, walking from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up. It's on kind of a hill. Uh, It's a big place. It's like Paris. It's like Tokyo. It's like London. It was an exciting place to go to. So they're coming near to Jerusalem. They're coming near because it's a feast day. Great anticipation is swelling. Probably at this season, being the Passover season, there was many as two million guests in the city. They had come from the north. They had come from the east. They had come from the south. They were all dressed in their different uh, Um, dresses from their country. Many of them spoke different languages, and yet they had one common faith, and that was Judaism. The Bible says here in verse number uh, 11 that it says they were thinking, wrongly so, but they were thinking that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. That word appear is an interesting word. I think it's a valuable word to look into for a second. It's a nautical term. It's the idea of uh, sailors out there sailing on the ocean, and all of a sudden on the horizon, they see the first little bit of a little mountain, or they see land, and that's always a a great feeling to know that I'm not going to be stuck out here forever. And so the word appear means to something on the horizon. You see it on the horizon. And so these people were thinking that this messianic kingdom that they had been told about for years since they'd been a child, and that their forefathers and their forefathers and their forefathers for thousands of years had talked about, it was finally happening. And that Jesus was their Messiah, and He was going to establish a kingdom, and there would be a kingdom of righteousness and justice. Oh, they were getting excited, and that's what they felt like. And Jesus said, no, no. Verse number 10, he said, I'm not here to be a king, I'm here to be a savior, saving first, and then I'm going to right all the social evils. And I would remind all of us again this morning that we who are conservative Christians, we who are Bible-believing Christians recognize that our specialty is the gospel. Now, we want to help uh, this world, we want to 
make sure if I'm in, in the government or if I'm in the legal world, I want to make sure that there's justice out there. I want to make sure that there's good laws. But the truth is, Jesus did not come to make this world more moral. He did not come to lower crime or to provide food. He did not come to save the environment. He came to save the lost. That's what He came for. Now, when people get genuinely born again, there is less crime, hallelujah, and there are better Christians, and they will be better stewards of this world that God has given us. And so I remind us again, as much as the liberals want to make Jesus this great star of theirs, the truth is Jesus uh, didn't come to fix us socially. He came to save us eternally. That's why all of these parables, I've, I've thought about it. I've never done a series just on the parables. And I've thought about as I've gone through these parables, how many of them talk about getting saved? How many of them talk about just the gospel? And uh, I know it's kind of a redundant theme uh, week after week, but Jesus is trying to remind us that our, we, are, we are salvation specialists. That's what we're here for. That's why he kept talking about the lost son or the lost coin or the lost sheep. And so here again, a little different angle, but he's going to remind us that he's coming again. But right now, this is not king time, this is savior time. And so verse 12, and he said, therefore, now he tells the story. So he crafts this wonderful story and he said, okay, I want you to, I want you to get this in your mind. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and to return. Now, if you uh, would look into the commentaries, you would find out that about this time there was a very famous nobleman. I think his name was Archelaus. Josephus, the famous uh, Jewish historian, talked about him. And uh, it was uh, likely that when he talked about this, many of the people were thinking, oh, are you talking about Archelaus? Is that what you're referring to? This person who was a certain nobleman who had gone back to Rome to get his official uh, right to come back to Jerusalem? We're not sure. But at any rate, he talks about a nobleman. The word there means high birth, one who was in a higher class. And that would certainly be true of our Savior because he was the most noble birth ever was. He had a miracle birth. He was God in the flesh. Notice it says he's going to a far country, far country. That means there's going to be a while on that trip. And uh, certainly it's been a while since Jesus ascended. Notice what it says he's going to be occupied with. He's going to come back and receive himself a kingdom. He's earned it. He has the right to it. And uh, he is going to come back and rule and reign over this earth. And so he's in a far country right now. And that's what he's coming to do. But I will tell you... Uh, any moment now, he's coming back to this kingdom. That's what he's coming to do. We uh, have these uh, wonderful programs on Wednesday night. I, I think we're doing one on marriage here in a few weeks. And uh, one of the ones we do quite often is called uh, Growing Kids God's Way. And the Ezos are a wonderful couple that give lots of children advice. I remember one of the parenting tips, and I think it plays into here, uh, one of their parenting tips was that when you were getting ready to tell your children to do something, and maybe they're playing with their toys, and you know, uh, you know how it is, and when you walk in and say, "All right, clean up," uh-huh, and they, you know, it's just a bad time, and then you set up this uh, confrontation, you know. So they suggested that when you can, and now obviously you can't always do that, and, and probably should not always do it, but there are most of the time, maybe you should just walk in and. Uh, kind of give them a warning sign, give them a five-minute sign, say, hey, kids, in five minutes, we're going to be dinner time, so I want you to start cleaning up, I want you to start putting your stuff away, and you give them a little, little heads up. And for some reason, that popped into my head as I was reading this. It seems like Jesus has done that. He's telling us, all right, you better pick up all your toys because I'm coming soon. And, and we see all the time, we see the results of Jesus. He's, he's telling us, hey, I'm coming. <laughs> this is your five-minute warning. All right, what the king explained, his future. Number two, now he talks about his friends, verse 13. And he called ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy until I come. Ten. 
Now, in Scripture, uh, numbers mean often things that are kind of under the surface. He doesn't make a big deal about them. We know the number seven, for example, is a number which uh, indicates completeness, as does three. Three often indicates the Trinity. Forty is like uh, the judgment. There are different numbers. Ten is the number for completion. For example, the Ten Commandments, which is all the commands of God summarized for mankind. The Passover lamb was uh, killed on the tenth day of the first month, and the Passover, of course, is God's complete salvation. And so ten, ten friends, ten pounds. This is talking about all of humanity, all of His friends, and those are uh, the gospel, uh, been given the gospel. His servants. Now, the word pounds here, of course, is an old English word. If you go to England today, they use a monetary, uh, their form of monetary is called the pound. This is, it goes back several hundred years. The King James Version was translated in 1600. But it is the Greek word mana, M-I-N-A. And so it's different than we've been talking about. Jesus talked about these other coins, which are denarii, which are a Roman. But here's a Greek, uh, a denarii. One denarii was a, a day's, uh, one day's wage. This was one mana, or mina, as you might, uh, we might pronounce in English. But one was actually equal to about three months' salary. So basically, we're talking, let's say, let's just say $10,000. We'll just kind of roughly guesstimate that. And so here's the story. This nobleman said, I've got to go. And so he gives to each one of the servants who worked for him. He gives them $10,000, gives them $10,000, three months' worth of wages, $10,000. Each one, he said, now I'm going to come back. I'm going to a far country. I don't know when I'm coming back exactly. As it turned out, uh, they're thinking, well, that's about three months, four months worth of wages, so I better make sure that I get busy while I can. And then he tells them, I want you to do your best to occupy. Now, I got to tell you, every time I read this passage, I get a little tickle in my throat. I kind of start laughing because years ago when I was in Bible college, we had this wonderful pastor came from the South. And um, he was a country preacher, I'll tell you. And when he'd get up there and preach, he'd get to preaching along, and he said, we've got to get out there and make a difference. And he was preaching on this passage. He said, we got to occupy. we got to occupy. And uh, I used to laugh. I thought to myself, I don't know what kind of pie that is, but I know down in the South they got some good pie. But uh, and I realized he was talking about occupy. Well, it just means to stay busy. Stay busy. All right, so... Well, I'm, and every time you read this now, I know you're going to say the same thing. Occupy. Come on, let's get out there and occupy. What are you doing this week? I'm occupying. All right. What the king explained, his future, his friends, sadly, his foes. Who would want to be against the king? But there some are. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him. By the way, this is exactly one of the reasons why commentaries feel like this was talking about Archelaus, the the one who was a nobleman that went back to Rome because the citizens did hate him, even though he was a, a great guy. His citizens hated him, sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, Jesus' words are very chosen very carefully. Notice what he says. They are his citizens. He had his servants, and then he had his citizens at large. They're all his citizens. Wait a second. I'm not your citizen. Oh, yes. You are. We all live in His world. We all drink His water. We all eat His food. And for those who are here this morning or out there and we're about in this world and they say, no, you know, this is a Muslim world or this is a Catholic world or this is a Hindu world or this is, uh, you Christians are the one who are the, you know, leftists, the fringe group. Oh, uh, no, we are, we are all part of God's kingdom and we are all citizens we are His because of creation. We are His because of His coronation as King of Kings. But notice what they say. Very proudly they say, we will not have this man to reign over us. We will not. And when you talk to people in this world and they kind of resist the gospel, always remember, it's not a head issue. Notice what it is. It's a will issue. It's a heart issue. We will not. We, and since I will not, I'm not going to think about it. It's a heart issue, and that's the issue here. They just simply will not have anybody tell them what to do. 
And this rebellion that uh, has become so much a part of our modern-day society, and you know, it just only gets worse, sociologist and historian Carl Zimmerman, 50 years ago, wrote a book called Family and Civilization. And what he did in that book was he compared the disintegration of various uh, historical cultures. And he found eight specific patterns that typified the downward spiral of these nations. Here's several of them. Make, uh, marriage loses its sacredness. Feminist movements abound. Sometimes people think the feminist movement, the now movement, you know, and all that stuff is all brand new. Folks, that's been going on since millennia. There's always been these uh, societies that have uh, abounded with that. And then uh, number three was, and this is, I think, leans what we're talking about, an increased public disrespect for parents and a rebellion for authority. We have come into this rebellious society where it's just, it is crazy anymore. This rebellion and this, uh, the, these uh, people that are resisting against the authority. And I personally believe that one of the biggest contributors to this is the current music that's out there in this world. It is one of the greatest drivers for the doctrine of rebellion. Of course, they call it protest songs, protest songs. And uh, many people are pushing these things, and sadly, even Christian music. I read this week a sad statement by one of the foremost Christian groups out there, Jars of Clay. And here's their lead singer and songwriter, Dan Hasseltine. And here's what he said, uh, speaking about a social, he said, I just don't see a negative effect to allowing gay marriage. So here is one of uh, America's foremost contemporary Christian writers, and he is saying uh, there is nothing wrong with gay marriage. Now that is an out-and-out rebellion against God's Word, and not only a rebellion against the, uh, the nature itself. Now folks, when these kind of people are controlling the minds of the music, and anymore we have people that are listening to some 20-year-old song leader who is giving the doctrine for all the saints of God and the church of God. And we're getting, we're going down this rebellious path. And so I just remind each of us that let's be careful about what we're listening to. We don't want to be part of that rebellion who said, no, I don't want anything to do with this uh, highborn king. What the king explained, and now number two, what the king expected. Personal devoutness, first of all, And it came to pass, and when he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom when they had given money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And he is coming back. If you want to see a graphic picture of his coming, Revelation chapter 19, and you can read it in all of its glory. But the Bible says he's coming back on a white horse with all of his saints, and it's going to be a counting time. Some tell us that all roads lead to heaven. More accurately is that all roads lead to judgment day. For the lost, the great white throne judgment, and for the saved, the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 16, and came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. Ah, this was one of those friends of Jesus, one of those wonderful obedient servants. And notice what he said. He didn't say, look what I did for you, God. But he said very wisely and humbly, Lord, your pound hath gained ten pound. Your one pound multiplied ten times. It was your power. It was your strength. It was your energy. It was every opportunity you gave me. It was your gospel. I just got out there. I did my part. I gave out a track. I gave my tithe. I gave my time. I did what I could. And you multiplied that. Oh, God, thank you for the blessed privilege of making my life a blessing. You've counted me worthy to be in the service of a king. And so this friend says to the nobleman, it's you. I'm just your delivery boy. I just did what I could. It's your money. I did all that I could with it. Verse 17. And he said unto him, well, thou good servant. Folks, we're supposed to be serving. Now, I know some of us feel like we can't serve. Sometimes we get our 
physical life uh, won't let us or our time or our resources or our brain power, but the fact is we're all serving Him some way because thou hast been faithful in what? Very little. Thou shalt have authority over ten cities. Sometimes we feel, man, what am I doing? I'm not even doing little. Notice what it said. I'm doing very little. But I will tell you that doing even very little faithfully for the Lord, God says you're going to be rewarded with ten cities. Now, I think it may be in some sense sort of a, just a, a imagery type language, but very possibly God is referring to this millennial kingdom where there's going to be some great uh, ruling and some reigning there. Certainly what I do know is happening is God is telling us there's going to be rewards when we maximize all of the things that we have available. You're a mom and you say you wake up in the morning and before you even are ready to get out there, you're having to deal with dirty diapers. My precious wife was telling me that our daughters, I don't get to hear from all that they're doing on their day-to-day things, but uh, three or three or four of our daughters are now are dealing with uh, potty training. And, and so there they are. They wake up early in the morning and all day long, oh, you know, deal. I mean, that's just a mess, folks. That's, a, that's just no fun right there. And you say, boy, I'm really doing something for God today. I'm cleaning up pee-pee all day long. But the fact is, folks, that is something for God. Here it says, very little, very little. No matter what we do, here's a man that's out there working hard. Boy, I mean, he's trying to make sales. Here's another person out there working, you know, out there in the field. There's another person trying to do what they do as a carpenter. Whatever the case is, God said that whatever we do, but whether it's very little or very big, the fact is God rewards us by being a light. Just be the brightest light you could be. You'd say, well, what, how can I be faithful with this pound that God has given me? Just wake up every morning and say, Lord, I want to be your light today in whatever you tell me to do. Whether it's talking with the children, whether it's dealing with my wife or my husband, I just want to be a bright light. I don't want my attitude to be all sour. I don't want my face to sell off a bad, send off a bad signal. I don't want to cuss. I don't want to take the name of the Lord in vain. I don't want to do anything unethical. I just want to do the best I can. And that's all what God asks. God says, when you have even little, just be faithful with it. Are you caregiving someone? Are you doing this? Are you just waking up and cleaning your house? What is it God calls you to do today? Well, I just want to be a bright light. Because people are drawn to a bright light. And that's just what I want. That's the way this is done. God said, look, even if it's very little, I'm going to pray throughout the day. Maybe I'm, uh, I have a lot of time on my hands. You can pray. Maybe you not have the physical ability to get out there or the time or the resources. But I'll tell you one thing. No matter what we do, God just requires us to be devout. That's what He's looking for. To maximize if we're a 20-watt bulb, then get all 20 watts out there. If I'm a 50-watt bulb, then amen, or a 100-watt. And that's what it goes on to say. Then he talks about a personal uniqueness, and I love this. First of all, the king expects us to be sincere. Number two, unique, a personal uniqueness. And the second came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said to him, oh, you lazy, no good. You should have done 10 pounds. No, that's not what God said. God said, well, then praise the Lord. Be thou over five cities. God doesn't give everybody the same opportunities. Some, now they all get one pound. They all get one gospel. And God multiplies that 10 times for some. He multiplies it five times for others. God expected. He designed uniqueness. And there's a reason for that. I mean, you know, you don't uh, use a bazooka to kill a fly in your house, right? And sometimes you got these little flies, you want to kill them, but you don't use a flamethrower. You know, you just get a little fly swatter. And I might be a fly swatter for the Lord, but other people are frame fl- flamethrower. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking of my dear friend, Brother Paul Sika. And those of you that are old timers might remember him. He is a evangelist on fire. I mean, he his personality is so big, he walks into the room, and I mean... Nobody else is in the room. It's him, just him. That's it. He is just in that room. He is big personality. Now, let's import uh, Paul Sika to a small town in Nebraska. 
He's a little corn town up there, have 2,000 people. I'm telling you, he would only last six months in that entire town. They would crucify him. They would shoot him. He would have the fastest growing church. I mean, whatever the case is, but I mean, it would blow up. Paul Sikas don't go to a town of 2,000 in Nebraska. It doesn't work that way. Paul Sikas need to have a national platform. Everybody's got a different platform. Thank God he creates us unique and differently. Someone wisely said this, and I love this statement. The best ability is availability and dependability. And that's what God's looking for here in this verse. The very successful Paul said this, Moreover, it is required in students, excuse me, in stewards to be found faithful. And I will say right here, I am so grateful for this church. You are such a faithful group of people. Unbelievable. I just, I was thinking about this this week and praying for you, especially last night. And came to my mind, so many of you have just been so faithful, faithful. And some can't do what they'd like to do. But I will tell you this, God still is going to give us far more than we ever imagined. Ten pounds and five cities and ten cities. The king explained, he expected And now finally, the king examines. And we'll see, first of all, the significance of the faithful. And he said unto him, well done, thou good good servant. Excuse me, I'm quoting from the parable of uh, talents. Because thou hast been faithful in very little, thou have authority over ten cities. Ah, what an amazing, glorious future reward God has given to those that are faithful. But notice, uh, he says here that, uh, thou hast been faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. It's not one-to-one. Isn't that great? God says, I'm going to reward your efforts far more than you put into it. You never know the difference one tract might make. One tract might win one soul, but that one soul might go out and win ten souls. Those 10 souls might go out and win 100 souls each, one tract. That's why I love getting the gospel out. That's why I love making sure that we get the printed page out and we get things out on the internet. And all the time I'm getting feedback from things that have come forth from our church here. And it's always a blessing to know that it gets out there. And once it gets out there, who knows what can happen. That's why I remind each of us just to do what we can to be faithful. Because God might take that one pound of effort and turn it into 10. That's what God does. He just blesses faithfulness. A study once was done in American church, and it found out that if mom and dad both attend church regularly, 72% of their children remain a faithful attendance. If only dad attends regularly, 55% remain faithful. If mom attends regularly, only 15% remain a faithfully. And if neither attend regularly, only 6% of children that go to church ever remain faithful. Therefore, my part is faithfulness. I've told many a man, just be there. He said, well, I don't feel like I'm doing much. Just be there. Just be faithful. Just wake up in the morning, be faithful. And God's part is the success. My part is faithfulness. God's part is to give the increase. The significance of the faithful. Be faithful. And then sadly, the slackness of the fearful. And another came saying, Lord, Here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. Now, I remind you, there are three types of people, and this is number two. There are the friends, there are the false friends, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, what a crazy thing to put something of so great value in a handkerchief. Now, somebody, I don't remember who it was, it might have been my mom, but I remember one of my people I know, they put their false teeth in a napkin. And... uh, then everything, and they threw it away. And, but can you imagine putting something so valuable in a napkin, put it in a handkerchief, and here it is there, gives us something, and this servant said, boy, I thank you for that $10,000, that uh, mana, that uh, Greek, uh, that, that uh, three months wages, thank you. I know you've been gone, and I took that, and I put it in a napkin so that I wouldn't lose it. No, the truth is, And as we go on to see, it wasn't that at all. This person just had a terrible attitude about life. Look at verse 21. Very warped concept of their duty. I feared thee. The reason I didn't do anything with the pound you gave me is because I was afraid of you. And we're not talking about a 
healthy fear of God. We're talking about a, someone who has a slavish, uh, terrible feeling. Because thou art an austere man. The word austere there means strict, harsh, hard-nosed, basically. Unfair, really, as we'll go on to see. I feared thee because you were such a hard-nosed, strict, you're such a hard person. Thou takest up what thou didn't lay down, and you reapest that which you don't sow. Now, folks, that is talking about a person who is basically takes money from others that they didn't deserve. Basically, here's what the servant said. Basically accusing the, uh, the, uh, the nobleman of the reason I didn't serve is because I was afraid you were so unfair. I could have worked so hard and I know you wouldn't pay me because I know what kind of person you are. You don't pay those who serve. You don't take care of people who work for you. And that's basically what he was saying. Isn't it crazy how we're unfaithful and we blame God for why we are? And that's what this man was doing. And so the nobleman, verse 22, says, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. He's still a servant, but I've just been a false servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that which I laid not down and reaping that which I did not sow. Wherefore thou gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. Here Jesus isn't admitting to being a bad guy. He's just saying, if I was that way, if the nobleman was that way, well then why wouldn't have you done something more than what you did? Why would you put it in a napkin? Why would you take all of your blessings, all of your talents, all of your treasures, all of the opportunities I've given you, and you put it in a napkin? and go on with life. You're so busy watching Netflix. You're so busy playing your video games. You never did anything for me. And here Jesus said, what you should have done is put your money into a bank. I know some people think that banking or investing is wrong, and certainly we shouldn't be involved in anything illegal or immoral or unethical. But here, just as a side note, God even advocates you getting usury or or interest. Um, nothing wrong with it. It's done in the right way. But he's simply saying this. He's saying, you ought to get an investment on your money. Don't just work for money. Get your money working for you, in a sense. He's saying, make sure that you view your life as an investment, a sacred trust. Every minute you give me, Lord, is a sacred trust. Everything you give me is a sacred trust. I want to make a difference every day. Verse 24, and he said unto them that stood by, take from him that pound and give it to him that hath 10 pounds. Really? And they said unto him, Lord, <laughs> he has 10 pounds. Now, what a terrible and uh, uh, sad contrast here. A faithful person, not somebody who does more than one pound in each case. They just, they just take their pound and they're faithful. And God multiplies it 10 times. He multiplies it five times, but he does the multiplying. I just do the serving. God does all the multiplying. But here's one who never even gets it out there, never even tries, never even does anything for God, never, never gives, never gives their time, never prays, just never tries to be anything good for the gospel, just a lazy person. And so God said, at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's what this is referring to. At the judgment seat of Christ, that person is going to suffer loss. Now, thank God we don't suffer a loss of salvation. That's already covered. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But there's going to be loss. That's why the Bible says in the book of Revelation, he wipes tears from the eyes. Now, I know he's wiping tears of heartache and sadness. But he's also, I'm sure, wiping tears of things that we could have done with the gospel, things we could have done in our life. We could have served the Lord. Some people are so busy just thinking about their job, they forget that that job is for Jesus. My, nothing wrong with a beautiful home, but my home was for Jesus. Nothing wrong with doing what we do, but it's all for Jesus. I'm just here to serve the Lord, however I can. My attitude, my heart, whatever I'm doing every day as a uh, as a caregiver, as a mother, as a father, as a businessman. I just want to serve God. That's what I'm here to do. And then God says, this, is, and the, this part just blows me away. He said, I want you to give it to the person that has so many blessings. 
If they're so faithful with what they have, I want you just to pour out on them. And I'm here to testify. People say, how are you doing, Pastor? I'll tell you this. I am doing so much more than I deserve, so much better. Sometimes I can't even believe all the blessings. You'd say, well, it just doesn't seem right that that person gets so many blessings. I've had my share of heartaches. I've had my share of tough times. But I will say this. As the years go by, I multiply the blessings. And it's, it's nothing other than just saying, I've just tried to be faithful. I just want to be faithful. And the Lord just keeps pouring out those blessings. And I look around and I say, oh, God, thank you. Like that old Bill Gaither song, the longer I serve him the sweeter it gets. And the blessings just multiply. A guy, um, I was talking with a fellow the other day, and he, uh, we were talking about grandkids. I try not to tell people how many grandkids I have, you know, but uh, he, uh, he asked how many I had, and I think he told me he had eight. And I said, well, amen. I said, I have 47. And uh, he said, 47? He said, well, my, my friends uh, say I'm a uh, I'm a grandkid hoarder already with eight kids. He said, I don't know what you are, but he, and uh, you talk about a hoarder. And, uh, but you know what? Those blessings, they just keep multiplying. And, I, and there's so many blessings in ministry. God said, you know what? Just, just pour out the blessings. And that's all, all of our lives, whether it be one child, no children. It doesn't have to be about children. I'm just saying that's just one illustration that God gives blessings sometimes with Money gives blessings with just so many other areas, physical strength. And I mean, there's so many different ways God pours out these blessings. And you'd say, I don't deserve it. No, God said, just pour it out on the faithful. Pour it out on the faithful. And for those who won't be faithful, there comes a point where it says, all right. Now, I'm also thinking, and I, and I think this is a warning. I'm also thinking that it means that there are some, let's look at verse 26. For I say unto you that every one of you which shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that that he hath shall be taken away. A faithless servant is stripped of their opportunities. All right? You don't want to serve God? There's going to come a time when God's not going to mess around with you anymore. And I sometimes... Uh, so what keeps you in the ministry for 40 years? Well, I do love the Lord, honestly. But I mean to tell you, sometimes there's just about one, just a couple of things that keeps me going. And that is that I do not want someday for one little grandchild, one beautiful little girl to look up at me and look at her grandpa and know that that man is out there in some bar somewhere, living it up, drinking. No, nah. You can have your old alcohol. You can have your old nightlife. Go ahead. I don't want that little girl to look up at me. I don't want that little boy to look up at me and say, my grandpa is a faithless man. A faithless man. No. No, no, no. You can, no, no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, that's not part of my life. I don't want that. Paul said, I fear lest I become a castaway. And there have been so many people over 40 years, bless their heart, they were just such precious saints, precious saints of God, singing things to God, just giving all their heart to the Lord, out there just maybe as a teacher, choir, I mean, just whatever, they're just serving God, happy. All of a sudden, I see just kind of peeling off a little bit and peeling off here a little bit, then start, you see on their little Facebook stuff, you know, they're sitting there at some table with a big old pot, bottle of wine, and then they're going over here, and then pretty soon you start seeing them kind of looking kind of crazy looking and wild, and you think, man, what in the world? Why, what is so luring about this old citizenship that's better than the faithfulness that God said He had just pour out? That's why my wife said, oh, Lord, the, the sentence of the, the slackness of the fearful. But as bad as that is, the loss of rewards or a loss of ministry or a loss of opportunities or a loss of respect on the side of those that uh, look after me, the worst is the sentence of the fateful. There's a great momentous doom of fate coming to those who refuse God. Now, there are three types of people in this room. There are the friends of Christ. 
those who are doing the best they can. It may not be what another person is doing, but praise God, God is rewarding us with cities. He's just giving us blessings to one he gives 10, to one he gives five, to another one, but they're trying to do what they can. None of us feel like we're anything. All of us say, it's your pound, Lord. It's your pound. It's your blessings. It's your strength. It's your energy. It's your opportunities. I just tried to be faithful. You are a great God. Thank you for letting me be your friend. But then there is a second group, and out of the false friends, those who take their talents, and they take their income, and they take their all they have, and they take their time, and they put it in a napkin. They put everything in a handkerchief and say, now, nah, God's too hard. He's, it's no fun to serve God. It's, I don't want to serve God. I, I want to have fun with my life. I want to live on the love boat. Someone said, you look like you're on the love boat here today, but I, that's what I am. I'm, they say, I want, to, I want to just live my life. Folks, what a sad thing to be a false friend. There's the friends. There's the faults. And finally, there's this third group, the foe. Those who just are out and out enemies of God. Verse 27. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. They would not that I should reign over them. Rewards for the faithful. Sadly, a reduction for the faults and a retribution for the foes. Every believer... The moment you become born again, have been placed in our hands a sacred trust. It's one pound. It's one gospel. What are we doing with it? You'd say, well, I don't feel like I'm any great preacher or singer or theologian or I'm no great servant of God. But you're faithful. God said that even if you're faithful in a very little, that may not be very little, but we might consider it very little. What am I doing? I mean, I've just got these little kids in their diapers or I'm out selling chemicals or I'm out um, remodeling bathrooms or whatever I'm doing. You're faithful for God. Your attitude is faithful. You're, you're giving glory to God. You're being faithful with your tithes and offerings. You're trying to do what you can. You're faithful in church. You're praying. You're just a good witness. You're a bright light for God. You're not out there cussing and dimming your, bright, your light, but you're a bright light for the Lord. And you're attractive that way. Bright lights are very attractive. And so I just wake up every day. Lord, I want to serve you. I, uh, I don't want to be a castaway. I don't want to be one of those that the rewards are taken away. Thank God, not my salvation. But I, I want every reward. I don't look for some kind of crown. I just want to be faithful. I want to be faithful to the, to the nobleman. He's been so good. But then there is a third group. And that's the group who just says, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't even care about God. I don't want anything to do with God. And sadly, so much of this world is like that. I don't want Jesus. And we see it on the news every day. We live in a day where the anti-Christ, anti-God movement is just growing by leaps and bounds. The media is pushing it. And it is just a terrible thing to live in this day with, when we think of the enemies of the gospel. And yet it's a great day to preach the Word of God. I live, uh, I, I don't have a lot of earthly little mementos that are, mean so much to me, but uh, I like my Volkswagen. It's kind of a nice little thing. That's, a, that's about it. I got a letterman's jacket from 1974 and somewhere. And uh, but I don't have a lot of other things. But there's one little thing that is very special to me, and that's this right here. My, uh, my mom and dad gave me this. Uh, they found it in a, in a bookstore somewhere in the Northwest. And uh, it is a, uh, I have several, I have lots of old books, but this is just about the oldest and is very special. This is a Bible, and it's a leather Bible. It has a little flap here. And uh, it's unique because it was uh, printed in the 19, or 1850 or um, 1860 here. 18, whatever it is, anyway. Um, I can't read it, but, uh, <laughs> but here's what, uh, what special is in the front. It uh, says, uh, Mrs. Uh, Jeanette Bone, uh, presented to her by her brother, 
William Bone. And it says this was given to Major uh, Johnny Bone um, at the War of the Rebellion. And uh, anyway, it goes on to say that this was a, this is a Civil War Bible. So some Civil War uh, soldier carried this Bible, carried this Bible out in the war. The Civil War, a terrible, tragic time in America's history and uh, brutal time. I mean, lots of soldiers didn't just out and out die. They just were dismembered. It's terrible. I read, anytime I read something about wars, I love to read about the Civil War. I don't know what it is, but um, this week I read a story and I want to share it with you. It was in the early 1900s and a mother was tucking her little girl into bed when the little daughter asked mom, what's the greatest day of your life? She thought for a second and she said, honey, I can tell you what the greatest day of my life was. Without questions, greatest day of my life. My father was a man who had fought in the Civil War. Mom and I were sitting on a porch one day and we had gotten word that he had been killed in battle. As you know, we were obviously very sad. I was playing with my kitten. Mom and I were sitting in the swing and we missed him so. But she said that day we were sitting there and we saw a man coming down the road that front in front of our small house. Mom said, there's a man coming down the road. I wonder who that could be. As the man drew closer, she said, sweetheart, that man seems to favor your father. And then another moment, mom said, it is your father. And honey, we burst from that porch across the front lawn, down the road towards the open arm of my father. I was right behind my mother, and I jumped towards my dad, towards his arm, only to find out that there was an empty coat sleeve. I realized that my daddy had lost his arm, and then I looked at his face. Scars were all over it, and I realized that my daddy, though, um, though hurt, had come back home. And mother said to me, little girl, the greatest day of my life was when my daddy came back home. And I tell you this morning that the greatest day of our life will be when Jesus comes back. And when I look at him with those scars in his hands, you know, it's been said that the only man-made things in heaven will be the scars on the body of Jesus Christ. And there he comes. He is our Savior. He is our daddy. He is the one we look towards. And that one who, with hands outstretched, said, I've got one gospel. Would you go out and would you do something with it? I'm going to a far country, but I'm coming back. What will you do with the gospel? We've just got to do what we can. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.